and thirsty as hell. He walked to the Kelvinator and opened it. Three bottles of milk, two of them curdled, and several royal crown colas. He found an opener and removed the cap from a bottle of the soft drink. From somewhere he heard a radio. It was playing stormy weather. Sitting down at the table, he noticed himself in the dusty mirror on the wall above a chipped enamel wash basin. His pale blue eyes weren't as alarmed as they ought to be, he supposed. His face, though, was weary. He was a large man, over six feet and weighing more than 200 pounds. His hair was from his mother's side, reddish-brown, his fair complexion from his father's German ancestors. The skin was a bit marred, not from pox but from knuckles in his younger days and Everlast gloves more recently. Sipping the soda pop, Paul considered his situation. If it was O'Banion or Rothstein or Valenti, well, none of them gave a good goddamn about Malone, a crazy riveter from the shipyards turned punk mobster who'd killed a beat cop's wife and done so in a pretty unpleasant way. He'd threatened more of the same to any law that gave him trouble. Every boss in the area, from the Bronx to Jersey, was shocked at what he'd done. So even if one of them wanted to touch off Paul, why not wait till after he'd knocked off Malone? Which meant it was probably Dewey. The idea of being stuck in the caboose till he was executed depressed him. Yet, truth be told, in his heart, Paul wasn't too torn up about getting nabbed. Like when he was a kid and would jump impulsively into fights against two or three kids bigger than he was. Sooner or later, he'd eventually pick the wrong punks and end up with a broken bone. He'd known the same thing about his present career, that ultimately a Dewey or an O'Banion would bring him down. He jumped when the phone rang. Paul looked at the black bakelite for a long moment. On the seventh ring, or the eighth, he answered. Yeah? Paul? A crisp young voice said. You'll know who it is. I'm up the hall in another apartment. There's six of us here. Another half dozen on the street. Twelve. Paul felt an odd calm. Nothing he could do about twelve. They'd get him one way or the other. Listen to me, Paul. Here's what you're going to do. You only have two guns on you, right? The Colt and that little twenty-two. The others are back in your apartment? Paul laughed. That's right. You're going to unload them and lock the slide of the Colt open. Then walk to the window that's not sealed and pitch them out. Then you're going to take your jacket off, drop it on the floor, open the door, and stand in the middle of the room with your hands up in the air. Stretch them way up high. You'll shoot me, he said. You're living on borrowed time anyway, Paul but if you do what I say, you might stay alive a little longer. The caller hung up. He dropped the handpiece into the cradle. He sat motionless for a moment, recalling a very pleasant night a few weeks ago. Marion and he had gone to Coney Island for miniature golf and hot dogs and beer to beat the heat. Marion. He'd never told her what he did for a living. Only that he owned a gym and he did business occasionally with some guys who had questionable pasts. But he'd never told her more. He realized suddenly that he'd been looking forward to some kind of future with her. She was a dime dance girl at a club on the west side, studying fashion design during the day. She'd be working now. She usually went till 1 or 2 a.m. How would she find out what happened to him? If it was Dewey, he'd probably be able to call her. If it was the boys from Williamsburg, no call, nothing. The phone began ringing again. Paul ignored it. He slipped the clip from his big gun and unchambered the round that was in the receiver. Then he emptied the cartridges out of the revolver. He walked to the window and tossed the pistols out one at a time. Finishing the soda pop, he took his jacket off 
dropped it on the floor. Then he wiped his face again, opened the front door, stepped back, and lifted his arms. The phone stopped ringing. This is called The Room, said the gray-haired man in a pressed white uniform, taking a seat on a small couch. You are never here, he added with a cheerful confidence that meant there was no debate. And you never heard about it. It was 11 p.m. They'd brought Paul here directly from Malone's. It was a private townhouse on the Upper East Side, though most of the rooms on the ground floor contained desks and telephones and teletype machines, like in an office. Only in the parlor were there divans and armchairs. On the walls here were pictures of new and old Navy ships. A globe sat in the corner. FDR looked down at him from a spot above a marble mantle. The room was wonderfully cold. A private house that had air conditioning. Imagine. Still handcuffed, Paul had been deposited in a comfortable leather armchair. The two younger men who'd escorted him out of Malone's apartment, also in white uniforms, sat beside him and slightly behind. The one who'd spoken to him on the phone was named Andrew Avery, a man with rosy cheeks and deliberate sharp eyes. The other was Vincent Mignelli, dark, with a voice that told Paul they'd probably grown up in the same section of Brooklyn. Mignelli and Avery didn't look much older than the stickball kids in front of Paul's building, but they were, of all things, lieutenants in the Navy. Their pistols were in holsters, but the leather flaps were undone, and they kept their hands near their weapons. The older officer, sitting across from him on the couch, said, I'm James Gordon, Office of Naval Intelligence. They call me Bo. The door opened and an attractive woman in a white Navy uniform entered. The name on her blouse was Ruth Willits. She handed him a file. Everything's in there. Thank you, yeoman. As she left, without glancing at Paul, the officer opened the file, extracted two pieces of thin paper, read them carefully. This is your headquarters? Paul asked. The room? The commander ignored him and glanced at the other two. Take his cuffs off. Avery did so while Manelli stood with his hand near his gun. The door swung open again and another man walked inside. He was in his sixties, lean and tall. Paul frowned. He knew the face from articles in the Times and the Herald Tribune. Senator? The man responded, but to Gordon. You said he was smart. I didn't know he was well informed. As if he wasn't happy about being recognized. The senator looked Paul up and down, sat and lit a stubby cigar. A moment later, yet another man entered, about the same age as the senator, wearing a white linen suit that was savagely wrinkled. The body it encased was large and soft. He carried a walking stick. He glanced once at Paul, then, without a word to anyone, he retreated to the corner. He too looked familiar, but Paul couldn't place him. Now, Gordon continued, here's the situation, Paul. We know you've worked for Luciano. We know you've worked for Lansky, a couple of the others, and we know what you do for them. Yeah, what's that? You're a button man, Paul, Manelli said brightly, as if he'd been looking forward to saying it. Gordon said, Last March, Jimmy Coughlin saw you kill Arch Dimitri in a warehouse on the Hudson. Paul had staked out the place for four hours before Dimitri showed up. He'd been positive the man was alone. Now, from what they tell me, Jimmy isn't the most reliable witness. But we've got some hard evidence. A few revenue boys picked him up for selling hooch and he made a deal to rat on you. Seems he picked up a shell casing at the scene and was keeping it for insurance. No prints are on it. You're too smart for that. But Hoover's people ran a test on your colt. 
The scratches from the extractor are the same. Hoover? The FBI was involved? And they'd already tested the gun? He'd pitched it out of Malone's window less than an hour ago. Paul rocked his upper and lower teeth against each other. He was furious with himself. He'd searched for a half hour to find that damn casing at the Demichi job, and had finally concluded it had fallen through the cracks in the floor into the Hudson. So we made inquiries and heard you were being paid $500 to eliminate Malone tonight. Like hell I was, Paul said, laughing. You got yourself some bum wire. I just went to visit him. Where is he, by the way? Gordon paused. Mr. Malone will no longer be a threat to the constabulary of the citizens of New York City. Well, sounds like somebody owes you five C-notes. Bull Gordon didn't laugh. You're in Dutch, Paul, and you can't beat the rap. So here's what we're offering. Take it or leave it. We don't negotiate. The senator finally spoke. Tom Dewey wants you as bad as he wants the rest of the scum on his list. The special prosecutor was on a divine mission to clean up organized crime in New York. Dewey was dogged and smart, and he was winning conviction after conviction. But he's agreed to give us first dibs on you. Forget it, I'm not a stool pigeon. Gordon said, We're not asking you to be one. That's not what this is about. Then what do you want me to do? The senator nodded toward Gordon, who said, You're a button man, Paul. What do you think? We want you to kill somebody. You're being square with me? Oh, you bet. With Manielli squinting out a warning to move slowly, Paul reached into his pocket and took out a pack of Chesterfields. He lit one. Go on. Gordon said, You've got that gym over on Ninth Avenue. Not much of a place, is it? He asked this of Avery. Avery said, Not so swank. Manielli laughed. Real dive, I'd say.